Sometime during the mid-16th century, government officials rode toward Eltonhead Farm, just outside modern-day Liverpool, England. A small monastery sat on the grounds. They had orders from the king himself. The priory was being seized. The head monk, Father Delwini, was shocked at the news. He hadn't had any advance notice, and now he and his brothers had to vacate the premises immediately. Even more upsetting, the new arrivals were confiscating St. Anne's Well. The shallow stone basin was said to have been visited by the revered saint. Ever since, its waters had apparently cured skin and eye diseases. The monks had cared for the mysterious, miraculous site while pilgrims had traveled far and wide to experience its healing powers. Now, it would be the property of the king. Delwini suspected this was the work of Hugh Darcy, a no-good steward who worked next door. Greedy Darcy had always coveted the monk's land. He'd be in a prime position to buy it when it was inevitably auctioned at a knockdown price. Sure enough, when officials marched Delwini to the basin, Darcy was waiting just next to the border hedge. He had a front row seat to the spectacle. Driven into a near frenzy by the steward's gloating sneers, Delwini clenched his teeth while his face went chalk white with fury. He cursed Darcy. But the selfish neighbor laughed it off as the bitter ramblings of a silly old monk. He wouldn't have anything to jeer about for much longer. Before long, the curse of St. Anne's Well would stalk him like a murderous specter. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know, but in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our first and only episode on the curse of St. Anne's Well. For centuries, pilgrims flocked to bathe in its healing waters until a tragedy transformed the pool. It no longer cured. Legend goes, it killed those who misused the well's power for evil. Today, we'll tell the story of St. Anne, the supposed grandmother of Jesus Christ. We'll explore her connection to the legendary well and look into the contemporary effort to study the curse with science. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. To understand the curse of St. Anne's Well, we need to learn about the woman it's named after. The story goes Anne and her husband Joachim lived in Israel in the first century BCE. Although they were very rich, after 20 years of marriage, they still didn't have any children. At the time, this was practically the worst thing that could happen to a couple. Being barren was considered a deeply shameful and even unnatural condition, and everyone knew Anne and Joachim were struggling to conceive. One day, the couple were traveling through Jerusalem and decided to visit the temple. But when Joachim approached the priest with an offering, the man refused it. He told Joachim infertility was a curse sent by God and sent him away. Joachim wondered if the priest was right. Maybe he and Anne had done something to bring misfortune on themselves. But he didn't know what his failing could be. He and his wife had always been devout and faithful. He pored over the traditional texts and stories of the twelve tribes of Israel, searching for an answer. Lo and behold, it said, apparently, all the righteous people in Israel had children to raise. The implication? If you didn't have children, maybe you weren't righteous. Joachim was so upset by the revelation, he ran off into the desert to be alone. He pitched a tent in the wilderness, vowing to stay there until this wretched curse was lifted. He fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, insisting prayer would be his food and water. Of course, he didn't think to mention any of this to his wife. For all Anne knew, he was dead. So she mourned his loss, believing she was now a widow. She washed her hair and put on her wedding dress, then sat under a laurel tree and asked God for a child. Nothing else could fill the hole in her heart. Suddenly, an angel appeared before her and said she would conceive after all. Overjoyed, Anne promised the child would be, quote, a servant to God. Just then, two more angels showed up and told Anne yet another angel had visited Joachim, who was actually alive, by the way. He'd been in the desert this entire time, fasting. That other angel let him know Anne was already pregnant, which was news to Anne as well. The husband and wife soon reunited at the gates of Jerusalem, delighted by the unexpected gift. Sure enough, Anne had a daughter not long after. They named her Mary. Yes, that Mary. Skip ahead a few years, and Mary gave birth to the Jesus Christ. And the rest is history, or at least biblical. But some scholars don't fully buy this account. The story of St. Anne wasn't written down until around 150 CE in the Protevangelium, or the Gospel of James, which is part of a genre known as infancy gospel. 
the non-canonical text was something of a bestseller, a sort of prequel to the story of Jesus. According to sociologist Pierre Deleuze, Anne is what's called a constructed saint. Since nobody knew who Mary's mother was, the author of the Protevangelium invented Anne to fill in that gap. The book was pretty popular, especially in the Eastern Church, which was prominent in the Byzantine Empire. In turn, so was Anne. This was likely because of her close association with the eternally beloved Virgin Mary. Even so, the Protevangelium had critics in high places. The early fathers of the Western Christian Church, including Popes Damasus, Innocent I, and Gelasius, condemned and tried to suppress the text. Still, the rush of excitement around the new narrative couldn't be stopped. In defiance of the ban, the book was reprinted and distributed in the Byzantine Empire between 550 and 700 CE. And so, the tensions between Eastern and Western factions deepened. Before long, the religious upheaval became political turmoil as the Muslims conquered much of the region. Christian residents fled the violence, seeking a safe haven in Western Europe. Not ideal for the refugees, but great for St. Anne. The refugees brought their love of Anne with them, telling their new neighbors all about how wonderful she was. By around 1030 CE, St. Anne's cult had reached all the way to England. That was about the time the Feast of Anne's Conception of Mary was first celebrated in the British Isles. The feast was in honor of, well, Anne conceiving Mary. But it wasn't until the 12th century that Anne really took off. A great controversy was roiling the Western Church. It had to do with Mary's immaculate conception and whether or not she was born with original sin. To put it in simple terms, Catholic theology teaches every human is a sinner, and this is true from the moment of conception. Aside from Jesus Christ, there's only one other exception to this, the Virgin Mary. Many theologians argued that since she gave birth to the Jesus Christ, she had to be pure. So when she was conceived and born, God intervened in such a way that she wouldn't have sin on her soul. The whole debate is wildly convoluted, but suffice it to say Mary's mother, Anne, was right at the center of it. The more theologians and lay people debated original sin and the Immaculate Conception, the more important Anne became to the story. To some extent, Anne was riding the coattails of her daughter. The popularity of the Virgin Mary in the Middle Ages cannot be overstated. She was one of the most adored figures in the Catholic canon, possibly second only to Jesus Christ himself. So as love for the Virgin Mary grew, so did love for Anne. And she got even more name recognition in the mid-13th century when she was featured in another book, The Golden Legend, a collection of stories about different saints. By then, Anne's relics were popping up all over the place. These are physical objects or body parts with a connection to a saint, like something they wore, owned, or used in a miracle. They're important in Catholicism because they're seen as physical evidence of God's power and grace. 
So even though it had been over a thousand years since she supposedly lived, parts of Anne's body and some of her possessions were said to be found throughout Europe. Allegedly, Francis Chart Cathedral proudly displayed her severed head. Anne became so well regarded, in 1229, England opened its first chapel dedicated solely to her. By the time the 14th century rolled around, she was everywhere. Fast forward two centuries and everyone was seeking help from her, including a hotshot law student named Martin Luther. In 1505, the 22-year-old was caught in a terrible thunderstorm. Fearing for his life, he prayed to St. Anne, promising to enter monastic life if he survived. Luther lived and, as promised, became a monk several years later. As it happened, Martin Luther later kicked off the Protestant Reformation that led directly to an attack on the cult of the saints. But we'll get to that later. For the time being, Anne retained her position as one of the most popular holy figures around. Married women and childless couples prayed to her, hoping for a miracle. But as time went on, Anne became known for more than healing. Those who used her powers for evil were punished. Coming up, the curse of St. Anne's Well. In a world of deep fake technology, fake news, and revisionist history, how do we know the difference between what's official and what's just fishy? That's where we come in. Hi, it's Molly and Carter from the Spotify original from Parcast, Conspiracy Theories. Every Monday and Wednesday, we examine the most controversial events in history, because maybe there's so much more to the truth than we've been led to believe. From the mysteries of outer space to the secrets, lies, and possible cover-ups occurring right under our noses, we explore every angle in search of the actual truth. We're not skeptics or theorists. We're curious, rigorous, and in the end, we let you decide. Catch new episodes of Conspiracy Theories each week. Follow and listen for free only on Spotify. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now, back to the story. Although St. Anne was never mentioned in the Bible, she still became one of the most beloved figures in all of Catholicism. She symbolized love, mercy, and healing. That last quality eventually meant Anne was associated with various holy springs whose waters were thought to cure the sick. In the British Isles, sacred springs and natural baths predated the arrival of Christianity. Some believe the locals saw naturally occurring waterways as sacred and centered worship around them. By the 6th century CE, these beliefs took on a Christian flavor. In the French city of Villefroymois, a fountain dedicated to Anne was believed to cure infertility. Many French, German, and English towns also had wells devoted to her. A statue of Anne watched over a spring in the French city of Brie. 
Word around town was, if you swam in the water, you'd be healed of ailments related to the eyes and throat. Apparently, at one point, a man tried to move the statue when he was suddenly struck blind. At the same moment, the waters turned to blood. To the north in the British Isles, more stories of cursed bodies of water were common. One anecdote claimed during the reign of Henry VIII, Satan himself impregnated a sex worker. The woman gave birth to a daughter in a cave next to a skull-shaped basin in North Yorkshire. Rumor had it, the girl was born with physical deformities, but had a special gift. She could see the future. She supposedly predicted the Great Fire of London and other disasters. As for the well, anyone or anything that touched its waters was said to turn to stone. Unsurprisingly, it became England's first tourist trap. Meanwhile, up until 1775, pilgrims bathed in the magic waters of St. Alien's Well in Wales. But at some point, the basin became associated with a much darker purpose. After paying the owner, visitors would write their enemy's name on a stone slate and lower it into the well while muttering curses. Supposedly, whatever ill fate the customer asked for would come true, unless the intended victim heard what happened. Then, they could pay a hefty fee to have the damned stone removed. Apparently, thousands of people cursed and counter-cursed each other until a nearby church destroyed the pit and planted potatoes over it. But no holy body of water was as notorious as St. Anne's Well near Liverpool, England. In the mid-16th century, during the reign of Henry VIII, Accounts say there was a priory located on Elton Head Farm. Although the plot of land was pretty big, the monastery itself was nothing special, just large enough for a dozen monks or so. While many religious houses were hotbeds of vice, greed, and hypocrisy, this priory was different. That was all thanks to its leader, Father Delwyny, who was known to be pious and kind. While he was in charge, the abbey never turned away poor souls in need of food or shelter. The same went for visitors to the monastery's most famous attraction, the Well of St. Anne, just about a mile from the priory. Legend had it, St. Anne herself had bathed in the sacred waters, although it's unclear how or why she made her way to rural England in the first century BCE. That's not the only questionable detail about the story. The pool wasn't built until the Middle Ages, but regardless of whether it had any connection to the actual St. Anne, the local people seemed to believe in the water's power. Who knows, maybe the well had mystical abilities, which were attributed to the saint after the fact. By the 16th century, a small three-roomed house had been raised over the basin. A pair of monks lived inside and oversaw its use. Any pilgrims who wanted to take a dip had to pay up. Imagine traveling far and wide to visit the holy structure, finally making it to Elton Head and paying a small fee to the monks. Then you're told to make another donation, this time directly to the well. The idea was to check a coin or another object inside 
to ingratiate yourself to the pool and, in turn, to St. Anne. You made your offerings, then went down the two steps that led to the square basin, which was about four feet deep and five and a half feet wide. The whole structure was made of sandstone. One conduit drew away excess water. Above it, a carved figure of a woman, perhaps St. Anne herself, carrying a pitcher. While you prayed to St. Anne, water seeped in from the adjoining brook that separated the towns of Rainhill and Sutton St. Helens. If you looked over, you'd see the hedge that marked the boundary between Elton Head Farm and lands supposedly owned by one Sir Thomas Bold. Given Bold's busy schedule, his assistant, Hugh Darcy, managed the estate. Darcy and Father Delwyny had a long-running dispute about their shared border. In Delwyny's mind, Darcy was a corrupt steward who'd snatch up Elton Head and the Priory as soon as he could. After one of their many heated debates, two commissioners showed up on Delwyny's doorstep. They were there on the king's orders. They were seizing Elton Head and everything on it. The only exception? The monks were allowed to take two pounds and a single gown as they searched for another abbey to move to. The holy men tried to argue, but this was a royal decree. There was nothing to be done. Delwyny was crushed, especially because he was going to lose St. Anne's well. As he walked the commissioners over to the basin, his thoughts turned back to his fight with Darcy. When he spotted the aggravating neighbor waiting at the structure, Delwyny decided then and there the steward was behind the entire operation. Furious, he cursed Darcy, invoking the power of St. Anne. He promised this greedy rival would never have the chance to enjoy his sinful profits. If Darcy took the invocation seriously, he didn't show it. He turned and strode away. But as soon as Darcy walked off, Delwyny gasped and fell backward. He'd fainted. The rest of the monks tried to revive their master, applying leeches to his skin. But it was no use. Within three hours, Father Delwyny was dead. It seemed his curse had worked, just on the wrong man. Shortly afterward, Sir Thomas Bold took over all of Elton Head, including St. Anne's Well. Darcy got what he wanted, too. He oversaw the destruction of the small house that sat atop it and no doubt looked forward to making a handsome profit off the grim acquisition. Although his future looked bright, Darcy couldn't forget the prior's words. There was an eerie sense of evil looming on the horizon. Sure enough, Three months later, Darcy's only son fell ill. Doctors examined the boy, but no one could come up with a diagnosis. He suffered for two days. On the third, he passed away. The cause of death, unknown. As if that wasn't devastating enough, Darcy's finances plummeted. Already struggling, a grief-stricken Darcy squandered whatever wealth he had left. Then Sir Bolton fired him as steward, which only made him spiral deeper. One night, Darcy was drowning his sorrows at a local tavern. Drunk, he stumbled outside and shuffled toward home, but he never made it to his front door. 
His wife stayed up all evening waiting for him, but he failed to come back. The next morning, she found him at St. Anne's Well. He lay dead, his skull crushed. It had been less than a year since Delwyny had uttered his terrible invocation. And in the end, the curse of St. Anne's Well got them both. Coming up, the truth of the Wicked Reservoir. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Now, back to the story. The story of St. Anne's Well features a greedy steward, a vengeful prior, and a mysterious cursed well. In other words, at first blush, the tale sounds far-fetched. There's no evidence anyone named Father Delwyny or Hugh Darcy ever lived, nor are there any reports of odd deaths associated with a stone basin in the Liverpool area. The whole account seems to come from a local urban legend, which first appeared in print in an 1877 newspaper article. For context, that's roughly 300 years after Delwyny allegedly cast the curse. But the records from Eltonhead Farm do say six acres were granted to Cockersand Abbey in 1267. It's possible a priory really did stand on those grounds. If so, it may have been one of the most important buildings in the region. During the height of St. Anne's cult, religious life in Western Europe was vibrant, complex, and all-consuming. In rural areas, the parish was the central hub of life. It was the only place where ordinary, often illiterate people could hear religious stories, prayers, and songs. Catholic tradition and teachings came alive in sermons, miracle plays, and festivals. Reverential images covered the walls and windows of local worship halls. So the church was the center of culture, a hub for creativity and learning, which would sound great if the institution wasn't so oppressive. The rampant corruption among priests and other clergy was an open secret. Slowly but surely, citizens began to question their religious leaders. In response, the Pope clamped down on the populace. Anyone who spoke out against the Vatican risked being labeled a heretic and executed. Meanwhile, church leaders were flagrantly corrupt, selling fake relics and letting nepotism dictate which clergy members rose through the ranks. Officials would sell indulgences, essentially charging people to be forgiven for their sins. By the early 1500s, tensions reached a boiling point. Many mark October 31st, 1517, as the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. That's when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of a church. Essentially, this was a list of grievances against religious leaders. Remember, 
Martin Luther was the same guy who allegedly prayed to St. Anne to save him from a thunderstorm. Now, his act of rebellion had a ripple effect, and others felt empowered to break from the Vatican. In 1534, England's King Henry VIII left the Catholic Church after the Pope refused to let him divorce Catherine of Aragon. He was the first European king to reject the pontiff's authority. Frustrated with the old ways of doing things, Henry and his ministers decided to create their own branch of Christianity, the Anglican Church. Rather than have the Pope at the helm, the King had the final say in religious matters. And Henry had a lot of ideas about how he wanted his new denomination to function. First, he sought to eliminate practitioners' obsession with the saints. Images of Anne and Mary appeared on everyday cups and bowls, doorways, and beautiful church windows and altars. Their monikers were given to children at baptisms. The woman Henry wanted to leave Catherine for was famously named Anne. And Henry couldn't stand hearing about these holy figures any longer. His men traveled up and down the country, wielding hammers and smashing saintly images along the way. Valuable relics were melted down for their gold and silver. The altars in many churches were seized and destroyed, their niches emptied or even covered by plaster. Those who disobeyed Henry and continued to practice Catholicism risked being thrown in jail, tortured, and killed. In 1536, a major anti-Catholic movement sprang up in northern England, including the region where St. Anne's Well was located. Under the orders of King Henry VIII's lead minister, many Catholic monasteries were shut down so that their land could be claimed for the crown. Within the space of about eight years, a millennia-long tradition of monastic life in England was eradicated. It led to what was called the Pilgrimage of Grace for the Commonwealth, a rebellion that opposed the king taking this land. According to historical records, the rebel army of about 30,000 men included someone named Thomas Darcy, the Baron of Templehurst. Despite their strength, the Duke of Norfolk tricked the rebel leaders and captured the group of anti-Catholic dissidents. Around 250 people were killed, including Darcy. When understood through the lens of upheaval, change, and the attack on traditional religion, the story of the curse of St. Anne's Well takes on a different meaning. It's possible the steward Hugh Darcy was conflated with the real Thomas Darcy, but it seems unlikely. The men had opposite goals, while Hugh wanted to claim St. Anne's well and its priory for the crown, Thomas was against the king's anti-Catholic crusade. So maybe their similar names were just a coincidence. Another explanation seems more probable. In the story, Darcy may have represented King Henry VIII, whose ministers shuttered the monasteries and seized their wealth. At the time, bad-mouthing the king was considered treason. If you were frustrated, you couldn't just go around criticizing his new policies. A character like Darcy, whether his name had any roots in history or not, might have served as a safe way to vent. Darcy's greed was a stand-in for the kings. 
Plus, it's not a stretch to say King Henry's life was cursed too. In 1536, he was in a serious jousting accident and badly injured his head. Not quite cracking his skull open, but close. And while Henry's only son, Edward VI, outlived him, it wasn't by much. Edward died after only six years on the throne at the age of 15. His cause of death was an unknown illness, much like Hugh Darcy's son, who died of a mysterious disease. In other words, the curse story may have been true on a metaphorical level. And other parts of the account seem to have a grain of historical accuracy to them, even though St. Anne's well itself doesn't seem to be particularly mystical. In 1976, the Merseyside Archaeological Society examined the site. The group excavated and preserved historically significant structures in the region, and the well could certainly use their help. By this point, there wasn't much left. At least, not at first glance. Just a thin strip of masonry under grass and rotting vegetation. Archaeologists uncovered the walls and a few stone steps leading to a compact floor of silt. When they compared their find with a mid-19th century sketch, they determined a stone channel and basin had gone missing. Once the site appeared on their Heritage at Risk register, the group Historic England performed a more complete excavation in 2016, fully uncovering what remained. They set about preserving it for the future. As for whether that's a wise decision, it all comes down to whether you believe in curses. After all, even if Delwyny and Darcy never existed, a person's belief in the supernatural can be powerful indeed. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production, and quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. Allie Wicker is our supervising editor, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Devin Hughes, edited by Natalie Pertsovsky and Angela Jorgensen, fact-checked by Cheyenne Lopez, researched by Chelsea Wood, recorded by Freddie Rivera, produced by Bruce Katovich, and sound designed by Juan Borda. Our hosts are Richard Rossner and me, Molly Brandenburg. Hi, it's Carter and Molly from Conspiracy Theories. This February, join us for two standout specials. First, celebrate Super Bowl Sunday with a two-parter on one of the most dominant and dubious teams in history, the New England Patriots. Then, a two-part Valentine's special on the mysterious murder of Charles Walton. Journey back with us nearly 80 years as we comb through the details and rumors surrounding his death. Pitchfork, witchcraft, and all. 
catch new episodes of Conspiracy Theories every Monday and Wednesday. Follow and listen for free only on Spotify.